Thank you, Lance. Where did he disappear to? Boy, that was wow. He sat down quick. Is that your? Was that your first time for offering? Second. Okay. Good job. Appreciate that. Is God more precious to you than gold or silver this morning? I trust He is. We are in Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew's message is about the King and His kingdom, and of course, that King is Jesus Christ. And Jesus has his followers, the king has his followers on the side of a mountain in Matthew chapter 5. And he is telling his followers, he's actually preaching an official sermon. And he's preaching to them, he's proclaiming to them what it means to be in the kingdom. This kingdom that he has come to usher. And it begins with what we know of as the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are a list of characteristics that are required in order for us to possess the kind of blessedness and the happiness that Jesus' kingdom is all about. And these characteristics are, for the most part, exactly opposite of what you would think would make a person's heart happy. And yet Jesus lays these out very authoritatively. And the first person that is happy or the condition of happiness is a poverty of spirit. He says, blessed are the poor. And we learn that to be to to see ourselves as a poor person before God is to realize that when we look in, take a deep look into our hearts and our souls, we realize that in relation to God, we have absolutely nothing in us that would obligate God in any way to turn to us, to favor us, to owe us anything. We are impoverished and the word actually means beggarly. And so. You find a person that realizes that in, in relation to God, all they can do is hold their hands out and ask for mercy because they have no sustenance of their own. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. And in the kingdom, you're not mourning your circumstances, though our circumstances can be very tragic. But you're mourning your own sin. You're taking a deep look at your heart and you're realizing that not only am I impoverished in spirit, but when I look into who I am as a person, I see that I possess within my being the very things that are offensive to God, sin. And so we we mourn over that. We grieve it because this word for mourning is the same word used for mourning over death. And we're mourning our spiritual death to God. We're mourning over the separation that sin has caused in our lives in relation to God. Well, I've mentioned before that these beatitudes are kind of like stepping stones or building blocks. They they build on one another. They really do. You can't mourn unless you know that you are poor in spirit and so forth. Now, one pastor has related to them like rings set of gymnastic rings that you hang from or swing from. And he said it's like there's a series of seven, if you pictured them hanging from the center of this vaulted ceiling. And and you swing from one to the next, and the one gives you just enough um, uh, momentum to reach it to the other. And you grab that one and you go through that one. So where does poverty of spirit and mourning swing us to this morning? That would be meekness. That's where we land this morning. And the Lord's going to talk to us about meekness. So I just want to 
camp on one verse today, and that would be verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As we think about these characteristics, I do want to point out the fact that there is an end purpose in these characteristics. And Jesus tells us that in verse 16. We're not there yet, but we will get there. In verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good, your good deeds or your good works, your version may say, and glorify your Father in heaven. So all of these attributes, these characteristics, their, their end goal is to be seen, to be noticed by our fellow man in such a way that they bring glory to God. They cause people to play, praise God. So what is it about meekness that would be in us that would cause people to value God more? What, what's beautiful about it that would draw people's attention to God? That's what we want to look at this morning. And then also um, we will look at the reward that comes with it. Meekness. Let's look at what meekness is not. And so often we have to do these with these beatitudes. Meekness is not weakness. It's not a weakness. Meekness, this is not, Jesus is not teaching that the kingdom is filled with a weak-willed people. Or it's not some uh, lazy, indecisive, mindless condition where you're just very passive and you let everything pass you by. It's not this state where you take no stance or no position on anything because you're you're too timid. It's not the, the timid person that's always ducking away from any kind of responsibility or any kind of limelight in the shadows, never standing up for anything. It's not a, a shyness or a withdrawn or introverted personality. These things, how would these things bring glory to God? How would they shine light on God? So many times we have a tendency to let personality traits. We want to confuse certain temperaments with this biblical idea of meekness. And that's not the case. And so we might think if a person is very soft-spoken or if they're very calm, they're very shy, that they are characteristic of meekness. But meekness in the Bible is really a matter of great strength, not weakness and that kind of timidity. In order, to, in order to be this kind of meek, we have to possess great strength in our hearts. Not these different kinds of insecurity. In fact, the Greek word for meekness here, it's, it's been used to describe several things. The thing that we are probably most familiar with, if you've ever Look this word up is that it describes a wild beast that has been tamed and is now gentle and calm. It's also been described uh, or has described a gentle breeze. So there's gentleness involved or soothing medicine. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was preaching to his congregation at the Westminster Chapel said, the man who is truly meek is the man who is amazed that God and man think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. And so that gives us at least a ballpark idea of what meekness is. And what I want to do 
primarily for the rest of the sermon is flesh it out. And we're going to look at some actual examples. Okay, I hear the definition, but what, what would that look like lived out in certain situations? That's always very helpful, and the Bible's always filled with these kind of illustrations. And so we're going to camp in the Old Testament for a little while, and then we'll look at some scriptures in the New Testament that pertain to meekness. The reason we're going to look at the Old Testament is because it turns out that Jesus, in preaching this sermon, he's preaching a New Testament sermon using Old Testament scripture. And this is actually a quote from a biblical passage in the Old Testament found in Psalm 37. So Psalm 37 is really going to be the foundation to teach us what the Bible has in mind when it talks about meekness. Psalm 37, 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And the word for land in Hebrew also is the word for earth. And I wish we had time to tackle this whole amazing psalm, but we do not. So we're just going to kind of pick at it a little bit here. But if you read this psalm, the obvious theme is inheriting the land. And remember, this is. God's people, the people of Israel, and of course the Psalms are written around the time of King David. They're a people of the land. They're all about the land because God promised them the promised land. But they were never able to really hold on to it because of failures, because of sin, because of idols. But always in the back of their minds, God's people in the Old Testament were thinking about the land or they were wishing they had more of it or they were wishing it was a peaceful land and they didn't have to fight so hard for it. They were wishing they could get some of it back. So in the mind, they're always wanting to inherit this promise. They want it. Even if they've forsaken it through sin, it's in the back of their minds. So what, what do the meek do or how do they act that would enable them to inherit this land that God has given to them? What kind of characteristics would they possess to be able to come into this land? Well, we're going to kind of work our way backwards in a few verses here because we talked about the meek will inherit the land. But what does that look like? Let's back up and find out. Verse 9 of 37. Psalm 37, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So here's another characteristic of meekness, a characteristic of what it takes to possess the land that God has promised. Let's back up a little bit farther so we can see more qualities of this individual that will enable them to inherit the land. More qualities of meekness. Look at verses 5 through 8. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires or devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. This really is a portrait of the meek that will inherit the land. You think about these characteristics. So what is one of the first attributes of meekness? He says in verse 5, the meek are those that trust in the Lord. The meek are those that have committed their way to the Lord. They have 
they have learned to rely upon him. They, they believe that God has their back. They believe that no matter what's going on in their lives, no matter how much evil prospers, no matter how much that evil person seems to, to gain, and this person of God or this righteous, this believer seems to just get things taken away from him, no matter what comes his way, his or her way, there's just this trust. There's this reliance because they've committed their ways to the Lord. Even when it seems like life is against them. They, they know God's going to do something. They know God's going to act. And it's interesting that this Hebrew word for commit your ways to the Lord literally means roll. And so it's like you're, you're rolling everything onto God. You're rolling his timing. You're, you're rolling your business practices, the way you do work. You're rolling your relationships, the desires of your heart. Your problems, you're rolling your burdens, you're committing all of these and you're letting God take all of it. And you're following him, you're walking with him, you're trusting him to guide you in this journey. A second attribute is in verse 7. You are still and you're patient. As opposed to what? The psalmist says, as opposed to being fretful and fretting about everything. There's this calmness about you. So you're calm because you've committed your ways to God and you know he can be trusted. You know that he knows best. You know that he's going to act. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows if you're suffering. He knows how far down you are or how far up you are. And he can be trusted to do what's best for you. And so... When things happen in your life and they don't go quite the way you thought they would or the way that your heart really wanted them to go, you don't spaz out and lose it. You don't become all bitter and anxious inside and just react impulsively because you're trusting God. That that fretting is not there. And, And you refrain, the psalm says, you refrain from anger. You refrain from vengeance for not getting your way. Because you're trusting God. So this, this meek person doesn't let the setbacks of life set them back. Or, or rob from them or take their stability away. Even though things are falling apart on the outside, on the inside, there's this calmness. There's this steady trust. God is sovereign. He knows my predicament. He knows my heart. He sees all these things. And he's going to work it out for me. I've committed my ways to him and I can trust him to do this. He's a good, good father. He's a good, good God. And so you can begin to see how this kind of characteristic would immediately set us apart from the way many in the world react. How do most people in the world react to life circumstances that really hit them with a hard blow or set them back. They panic. They fret. They spaz out. They go all different directions, run in all different directions. They get confused. They don't know what to do because the desire of their heart or this thing that they thought was going to bring them peace, it's gone. It's been wiped away from them. And so how many people are just all 
huddled up in anxiety and they're, they're fretful and then they want to blame everybody else. They want to blame the world. They're mad at the world that this has happened to them. And they just can't seem to move on in life. How many people are stuck in these kinds of seasons of life where they just they were just not the hard blow and they can't recover from it. They don't know what to trust. They don't know where to go. So this meek person that has this resolve, this calmness, this steady trust that doesn't get washed away with every storm, it begins to set them apart from the world. This, this trust in God becomes a very beautiful thing, a very attractive thing. And often those that don't have it wonder about it. How can you react in such a way? How can you be so calm in light of what's going on in the world? So just a quick review. Meekness begins with trusting God. Of course, it's this gentleness. It's power under control. But it begins by trusting God, committing our ways to God, just rolling with him in every area. And then trusting him enough to wait for him. To be patient. Goodness will come. God has this. He's got my back. I, I know that about God. Even when opposition sets in. So let's see if this works in real life. If you take this biblical definition of meekness, let's apply it to a person that actually is in Scripture and see how it works. Well, there is a person that in the Old Testament is known as the meekest person on earth, and that would be Moses. So let's look at Numbers. Um, I'm going to read it for you. Numbers 12, 1 through 4. Now, Moses, as you know, he's, he's God's leader. He led the people of Israel out of Egypt, but he faced his share of opposition. First of all, he was reluctant to be God's leader in the first place, but then the people were always rebelling against him. They were always challenging, challenging him, and he was just trying to be God's spokesperson in obedience. In this case, it's not just any, any person that is rebelling against him. It's his own family. It's his kin. It's good old brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. This is in the first four verses of Numbers. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? The Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And we don't have time to read it all, but basically it's like they get called, the family gets called to the principal's office because they're little, there's a dispute here with the siblings. And he calls them in the principal's office and he sternly rebukes Miriam and Aaron and confirms Moses as his spokesperson. And that's what happens there. But there's something interesting in the way that this story is told. And that is, we're kind of on the edge of our seat about what's going to happen with this rebellion. What's God going to do? And the author says, by the way, Moses was the meekest person on earth. You think, what 
that's kind of out of place. What's that got to do with the story that this author is telling? What actually has everything to do with the story because what he is pointing out is, look how meekly Moses has acted in light of the circumstances, in light of what he's facing in his life. Moses has been called by God. He has followed God's leading. And so this is his occupation. This is his livelihood. He's left it all to follow the Lord. This is his reputation. And all of this is at stake because it's being challenged. Moses, you're not the only leader. You're not the only one that can speak for God. But notice what Moses does not do when his very livelihood and reputation and everything that he has become is challenged. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't stand up for his rights, so to speak. He doesn't get all bent out of shape. He's not all anxious. He's not fretting. He's not wringing his, his hands. He doesn't call down judgment. He's not looking for blood. This situation, though everything is at stake, he does what a meek person in this situation would do. He just trusts God. He shows up for the meeting at the tent of meeting. I trust God. I've committed my ways to God. God's got this. He knows what's at stake in my life. He knows what's at stake in my spiritual calling, in my ministry. And I'm just going to wait for him to deal with the situation. I can trust him to do this. And so he waits to see how God's going to handle it. Doesn't say a word. And what does God do? He comes to Moses' defense and he vindicates him. So meekness refrains from this defensiveness. It refrains from uh, revenge. Meekness can absorb criticism. Meekness can absorb the hardships of life without getting all bent out of shape and losing it. Because of that constant trust. It's a powerful thing that brings glory to God. And so we see that in the life of Moses. But we also learn something new in the New Testament about meekness. There's this other very important element to it that is very relevant to our times, I think you will see. And for that, we're going to turn to James, one of the most practical writers in Scripture. If you want to read just the nuts and bolts of things, read James. James chapter 1, 19 through 21 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In that little passage there, James has two people in mind. He's got the person that can't stop talking in mind, the person that's not at all slow to speak. They're quick to speak. They don't want to hear what you have to say because they already know they're right. So there's really nothing that you can add or bring to the table with this kind of person. And if you dare cross them, they're going to get very angry. There's no slow to be angry. They're going to get angry very quick, get defensive very quickly if you try to challenge their position at all. So you have this kind of person in mind. You don't want to cross them. They'll punish you with their anger. If you do, they're not at all receptive to what you have to say. 
and they're not receptive to the word of God. They're not receiving the word of God with meekness. Then on the other hand, James has in mind this person who is slow to anger, who does want to hear what other people say. You have something of wisdom to tell me. I want to learn it. I'm open to rebuke. I want to know if I am in error. And I'm not going to get upset if I find out that, you know what, I was wrong and you were right. I welcome those kind of things. I might even need correction in my life. I'm not going to get all bent out of shape and defensive. See, that's meekness. And then when the word of God comes, it's received in meekness. It's received in a way that I want to be conformed by truth. That's what James is teaching us. He's, he's saying a meek man is teachable. He's conformable. He's hungry for these kind of things. We see it again in James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. Who would ever thought that meekness had anything to do with wisdom? And yet it has a lot to do with wisdom. Because it's a mind that is trusting God, but it's a mind that wants to be wise in the sight of God. Doesn't want to reach out for the foolish things of the world. Because he's teachable. Truth matters to the meek person. It's very valuable to the meek person and he wants as much as he can get of this truth. And the meek person, they, they might get angry. But it's only because truth is being defiled. It's only because truth is being maybe exchanged for falsehood. And so that will rile a meek person. Of course, they'll be slow to, slow to be angry, but there's, anger can be, is a good thing, can be a good thing if it's done without sin. We absolutely should be angry at things. We'll talk about more, that more in another attribute. But they're slow. But they got become angry, but they have very deep convictions that if they're crossed in a certain way, you will see their anger. So James is saying that we, in order to be meek, we have to have a certain kind of uh, knowledge and wisdom. A certain kind of love for truth so that we will allow the word of God to come into our hearts and transform us so that we can understand it. And then we will be biblically wise. And of course, biblical wisdom in Proverbs isn't just our IQ. It's a moral element involved. It's not just knowing the right thing. It's doing the right thing. That's what makes us biblically wise. Argumentative people, they're overconfident. They already know it all. I've already looked into this. And I'm quite certain that you're not going to change my mind because I'm so much smarter than you are or I've researched more than you have. Um, Meekness enables us to gain a biblical worldview. Slow to speak. Quick to listen. Let me just say, give a a quick plug here. This kind of meekness, you know, it is a real life thing. And this is the kind of atmosphere by the way, that we enjoy in our leaders' meetings and our elders' meetings. One of the things, as I was thinking about this message, was, you know, being, being slow to become angry, quick to listen, slow to speak. It's the kind of atmosphere that I'm so grateful that we have in our leadership meetings where we're willing to hear people and we're willing to, we want truth, we long for truth. And these guys 
are really slow to speak. There's not that arrogance. And our, our meetings are not filled with spit flying all over the place and people's fists banging the table because of this kind of meekness that is present. And it makes a huge difference. I'm very grateful for it. So how does this wisdom work that James is talking about? Look at verse 17. The wisdom from above, this is chapter 3, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. There's that word. Open to reason. Gentle is also meek. Open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit. So what kind of a meekness, a characteristic is somebody who is open to reason. They want that truth. They want to be reasonable about things and they want others to be reasonable with them. There's a sincerity. There's a gentleness, not a combative and a closed mindedness. So there's an important correlation between reasonableness and meekness. If two people are presenting facts, then I want to know, if, or a meek person wants to know the facts in the situation because they may stand to be corrected rather than asserting opinions <clears throat> for their position. They realize that the truth is bigger than their opinion. Now I'm going to start hitting on a nerve, a cultural nerve here. They realize that the truth is bigger than their opinion and their position. Meekness is not about presenting our opinions. Meekness is about truth and reasonableness based on facts. And when we just want to present our opinion and have no solid facts to back them up, that's called pride and obstinance. We're not willing to bow to any standard higher than our own. We don't want it. We don't want to hear it. So why bring up this aspect of meekness that we're probably not used to hearing about? This reasonableness, this willingness to just bow to truth and Embrace it because this is one of the greatest things that our culture struggles with today. We are not a meek culture when we look at this receptivity to truth, the receptiveness to bettering ourselves in under this standard that is greater than we are. Breakpoint, as you will recall, Chuck Colson's Breakpoint said that we are in a post-truth culture. And if that's true, then what have we replaced this higher appeal, this higher universal standard of truth, what have we replaced it with? Personal opinion. It's in politics, it's in culture, it's in everything that we think, do, breathe, and live today. Everything has become about personal opinion. If you believe something, don't... if some, don't dare cross me in what I believe or the conclusions that I have drawn for myself. What I want to be and what life is all about. Because you're, you're just being arrogant and obstinate if you cross me in my personal opinion. This is especially true, no offense, but to the younger generations because that's what you've been absorbing throughout your life. This idea that personal opinion, personal opinion reigns. 
I have no obligation to present you with facts. You are just supposed to listen to me and respect it and delight in it. And if you don't, uh, there's going to be some combativeness there and defensiveness, especially if that opinion is challenged. How can this be? How can we now be a culture where opinion is so important and even valued over absolute morals? Well, I'm just going to quickly, quickly dabble in how that happened. And I'm going to quote G.K. Chesterton, who called this shift, this, this shift or dislocation of humility or meekness. And here's what he said. It might sound a little fuzzy, but it'll all come along very shortly here. <clears throat> this is in the early 1900s. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the the part he ought not to assert himself. And the part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt the, the divine reason or the truth or the absolute standard. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. In other words, we we have become so modest and meek not to assert boldly anything that we cannot even assert that which is most obvious anymore. One opinion just throws it down. We are that race of men that Chesterton basically prophesied would come about based on this dislocation and shift that has taken place away from this absolute standard that we're all subject to, to now we're just subject to our individual opinion. And that's it. That's as far as it goes. We are that race. Because how can you defend a standard that in your mind doesn't really even exist. There's nothing to defend. And how can we acknowledge this higher standard when others would say you're just being plain old hostile and arrogant to try to share this idea that I am accountable to anything that you would say. That's just your opinion. I have my opinion. Robert Vila, in his book, Habits of the Heart, described it like this. It is an understanding of life generally hostile to older ideas of moral order. Its center is the autonomous individual, presumed able to choose the roles he will play and the commitments he will make, not on the basis of higher truths, but according to the criteria of life effectiveness As the individual judges it. That's how he put it. It's the same thing. So Western culture now has shifted to where this idea of of not knowing or being assertive about individual or higher truths is the meek position. And to assert that there is such a thing as absolute truth is the enemy of that. It's the opposite of that. It's the argumentative quick to anger person in the scripture. So there's a shift. And so now people get angry at the wrong things that they're meek 
in the wrong things and hostile in the right thing. It's sad. It's a sad thing to think about. Because basically we now live in this culture. We now live in this culture that thinks it has freed itself from this higher standard of telling them how they have to live. Now I can just live any way I want. I'm no longer in bondage to this bigger truth. But what am I really in bondage to? If I have exchanged one standard for another, now I live in a culture that is in bondage to its own opinion and can't say a word about it. We can't challenge each other because there's no standard to challenge each other with. Now, the big problem with it, with that, obviously, obviously, is that how can I ever save myself from error? How can I ever keep myself from going down the wrong path and making life altering, changing and tragic decisions if I am not open to receive truth, absolute factual truth that's been tested and proved? Then everybody has their own right to just live their own disastrous lives and to pick and choose what they want to do because they don't value truth. See, a meek person says, yeah, I want it. Why would I want to destroy my life if there's something out there, if there's wisdom out there that can that can guide me where I'm not subject to my own opinion? Meekness says I am a fallible person and I need your input input in my life because I don't have it all together and I have made bad decisions in my life. So I want what you have to say. I want any kind of wisdom that is higher than mine. Therefore, I'm not in bondage to my own opinion. But the this person, the opinionated person whose standard, that's the bondage. And they are in bondage to the very thing that Jesus came to set them free from. The flesh. Sin. Thinking that we know it all. Wanting to be our own gods. It's not a freedom as the enemy promises it is. Doing your own thing. It is just another form of bondage. Christ has come to set us free from that kind of imprisoned thinking. In bondage to our own opinions. Enslaved to it. You know, Hollywood applauds this very thing. Just look, look, I forget what you call the, uh, the Oscars and all those other different awards. But, you know, the weirder the better. And, and you just go, girl, if you make that decision. You just go, girl, if you've decided to be a boy. I mean, you just, any, the, the weirder the better. Because they are exalting, hailing, worshiping personal opinion, personal choice, personal rights. You have every right to decide whatever you want for yourself. And the way I'm going to glory in it is encourage you and clap my hands at it. Not challenge it. Because if one person in there challenges it, boy, you just, you just lost a job. You just lost a career. See, that's not freedom. That's bondage. To do everything but call what's wrong, wrong. You know, about 20 years ago, it's been about that many years. And I'm, I'm nearing the end here. If you're wondering how much longer is this going to go on. 20 years ago, this thing happened. Uh, our, our culture decided after centuries of standards, after century, centuries of 
moral wisdom, uh, we decided that we were going that that same sex thing, same sex marriage was a good thing. And we're going to liberate ourselves from the traditions and morals of our of our forefathers. And for those of us that were alive and of presence of mind when this decision happened, we thought, oh, my goodness, where are we headed now? This uh, you can never get any worse than this. And come to find out that was just the beginning. That was not the end. It was the beginning of this kind of thinking of personal rights, this kind of thinking that we can define ourselves. We don't need any outside existence. We can define ourselves, decide for ourselves who we are. And now we see where that has led us. This personal choice. And don't you dare say a word about it. The government might even get involved. If you start to come down with hard moral choices about what's right and wrong and who you're going to serve, who you're not going to serve. It's a very tricky thing in our culture. And to, to, to trace it all the way back to this idea of just simple meekness. This idea of, yeah, I want. If I'm in error, I want to be corrected. If my thinking's off, I want to be corrected. Who would ever thought that a lack of meekness, this kind of characteristic, would bring us where we are today? So winding down, what do we do if we know the whole world is going astray? They're rebels. Uh, they're not thinking right. We need to come down hard on them. We need to tar and feather them for the error of their ways. Is that what meekness is? As evil as this world gets, look what God instructs us to do in Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of... ...spirit of gentleness. Watch out for yourself, lest you too be tempted. Never think that you are the standard. We're all under the standard. Be careful, but for the grace of God, you'd be thinking the same way. You'd be doing the same things. We're all down here together. Let's be gentle. Let's be understanding. Let's be loving. It's not, it's not what you might think. Oh, yeah, we need to corral them and get rid of them. Gentleness. Spirit of gentleness. So pull it all together. Meekness. What does it do? It trusts in God. It has committed its ways to God. It's rolled everything onto God. Everything that we are, our desires, all our problems, all our anxieties. Yes, God, you have this. We don't fret. We wait for God's timing. He's a good, good God. And he's going to bring something out of this that's good for us. Let's just see what he's going to do. But whatever it is, it's good. And I'm going to praise him for it. And meekness has this reasonableness to it. Where we receive truth and the word of God with a very willing heart that desires to live according to that which is right and bring honor to God in that way. And then lastly, with every beatitude comes a reward. What is the reward for the meek? They shall inherit the earth. And that's just Jesus' way of saying, take courage, guys. Take courage. The world is yours. That's a pretty good pick-me-up, isn't it? Yeah, you're going to suffer through for a little while on this journey. Things aren't always going to go. But in the end, it's yours. I've, been, I've given it to you as an inheritance. So take courage when things don't always seem so good. 
Take courage when it looks like evil has the upper hand. Because in the end, it is all yours. So you might think as we close this morning, you know, I sure could use that. Because I'm tired of getting washed away with every storm of life that comes. I'm tired of trying to rely on my own opinions and what I think is right. Because look where it's gotten me today. My life is a mess. I I sure could use some wisdom. I sure could use this calmness and this resolve that doesn't get all bent out of shape and think my life is ruined over one little thing or one little hardship or several. Well, the way we get meekness, because it's a characteristic of God, is to have God himself in our lives. And the way we get God into our hearts is to put our faith in God's son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins And with him comes that happiness, that blessedness, and that meekness. Yeah, it's in imperfect form, but it's there, and it will grow. May God bless the preaching of his word.